hey, Sanford here, and welcome to Unlock to Unleash EP, and this is episode number 11, and today's title of the show is, We're Not Back to Race, It Never Went Anywhere, and I want to start off with this little quote here, it says, the only thing to fear is ignorance, keep learning what you need to know, what you can get from school, university, um, and things of that of such, into, into in, in, institutions, and what you need what you need to grow, which is the stuff that you love doing and living every day. So we are, of course, in um, June 2020, and we've just well we're currently still going through the coronavirus, and of course we're on a huge, huge stint of the murder of George Floyd. But of course, this is nothing new. It's been going on um, for centuries. And so I want to really dive into this today, but I want to look at a couple of uh, prolific authors who speak on uh, race and and racism um, in the world. So I'll touch on that as well. Um, But let's go ahead and dive in here. Back in February 2020, I started a series of 10 blogs which I posted on on my Facebook page, Instagram, and they were entitled Racism, Sex, and Relationships. Because I just felt that it was time to raise the curtain on what I feel are, well, really three of the most obvious topics on the planet, yet three of the most stigmatized, shame-filled, and silenced topics that I feel that our youth should know before they step out into the world. Now, I posted these on my Facebook page, as I said, and I got a lot of hate back from them, as well as people who would normally comment and share on my, on my pages, they kind of stopped, uh, you know, because they, they were used to my, my loving post, my teamwork post, my inspirational and motivational post. Where once I got to into the topics of racism and sex and relationships, I got fewer <laughs> comments on those. And of course, <clears throat> this was a, a sure sign that we did not want to know the truth about life. We wanted to live in ignorance and, and an illusion. And of course, we want our kids to keep on living in that ignorance and illusion as well. That's at least what I got from from uh, doing the post and really uh, putting it out there and talking to some, to some of my friends and networks who had little to say about it. What I wanted to do was to raise our social consciousness about sex and relationships. Yet both are hidden and not talked about, just like racism. If you want, you know, if we, if we admit our shame and our fear about sex and that we are actually lost when it comes to relationships, we just might have to really look at it and look at ourselves just like racism. And of course, the thing about racism is something that we should have addressed in 1944, I'm sorry, 1444, when the first African slave ships were brought to Portugal. And in 1526, when African slave ships were brought to South Carolina by the Spanish. During the Jewish Holocaust, something else we should have talked about in 1930s and 1940s before it got out of hand, during the apartheid in Africa, during the white Australian policy in Australia, during Jim Crow and the new Jim Crow, the school-to-pipeline system in America. 
You know, a white friend said to me once, she said, um, just because it's happening in America, I don't understand why, you know, uh, problems have to be uh, here in Australia as well. You know, we don't have to protest. Well, when World War II, the Vietnam War, and the war in Afghanistan was on, Australians fought with America. When the World Trade Towers were destroyed, the world grieved, mourned, and came on board, including Australia. When coronavirus hit and the world shut down, Australia shut down too. We want to follow and copy the best things from America. Cars, houses, phones, medical advancements, the athletes, film, TV shows, fashion, even the fast food chains. And many Australians have been to America and many more want to go back. But when it comes to pivotal, hard-hitting, and moral and social issues, now, that's just an American problem. Well, I got news for all of us. Racism is black and white, and it can only be resolved by us as black and white people on this planet. You know, the Australian Prime Minister said, and this is a quote from the Guardian news, newspaper, there's no need to import things happening in other countries here to Australia. I mean, Australia is a fair country. I mean, Australia is not the United States. Obviously, that was funny to me. It's an odd position for Morrison to take, given his, you know, his propensity for importing cultural, cultural wars from the U.S., such as even phrasing something like the importance of acknowledging the country by now adding Americanisms of thanking men and women for their service before his speech. Again, I stated that, stated that from the, I quoted that from The Guardian. Australia has little to boast about, <laughs> even by comparison with the US. Black Americans make up to 12% of the adult population, but 33% of the US prison population. And in Australia, the ratio for indigenous black people is 3% of the population and 29% of the prison population. These figures don't occur without systematic racism throughout society relating to employment, income, education, and health. There are many books about race and there are two that I want to draw from in the next two segments here. One is called White Fragility by a white woman named Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And the other is by a black woman uh, called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. First, White Fragility. What is White Fragility? Well, it's, she explains it as discomfort and defensiveness on the part of a white person when confronted by information about racial inequality and injustice. The book White Fertility allows us to understand racism as a practice not restricted to bad people. It shows how white people use defensiveness when challenged about race. White fragility is characterized by emotions such as anger, fear, guilt, and by behavior including argumentation and silence. These behaviors in turn function to um, reinstate white racial equilibrium 
and prevent any meaningful cross-racial dialogue. Dr. D'Angelo states that given the dominant um, propensity of racism as an individual act of cruelty, it follows that only terrible people who don't like people of color can commit it. <laughs> While this conceptualization is misinformed, it functions beautifully to protect racism by making it impossible to engage in any necessary dialogue or self-reflection that can lead to change. <laughs> Outrage is often followed by righteous indignation about the manner in which the feedback was given. She says, I have discovered that there is a way, a sort of silence, a sort of unspoken set of rules for how to give white people feedback on racism. She has designed this particular uh, format here, which I'll go over, which she, which she entitles the rules of engagement when giving feedback to white people about racism. And I'll just go down the list here. So these are some of the things on her list. Don't give me feedback on my racism under any circumstances. That's number one. If you dare to criticize what I am saying, if there is any emotion in it, then it is invalid. You must trust that I am in no way racist before you give me feedback. Number four, if there are any issues between us, we cannot give feedback on racism. Number five, again, these are rules of engagement um, stated by Dr. D'Angelo on how um, white people protect themselves when it comes to the rules of engagement around race. So, um, number five, feedback must be given immediately, any later, and it doesn't count. You must give feedback in private. To do it in front of people is a social no-no. Number seven, you must be as indirect as possible. To be direct is insensitive. Number eight, as a white person, I must feel completely safe during any discussion of race. When I say safe, I really mean comfortable. Once you give me feedback on racism, I then get to focus on how you oppressed me. Number 10, you must focus on my intentions, which cancel out the impact of my behavior. And the last one here is number 11, to suggest my behavior had a racist impact is to misunderstand me. You will need to allow me to explain until you can acknowledge that it was your misunderstanding. So again, those are the rules of engagement by Dr. Um, uh, D'Angelo of how you should um, address people on racism, particularly well, white people on racism. She calls it the rules of engagement. Dr. D'Angelo says that she talks about what she talks about in her guidelines and in her book um, rest on the understanding that there is no face to save and the jig is up. I know that I have blind spots and unconscious uh, investments in white su superiority, she says. My investments are reinforced every day in the mainstream society. I did not set this system up. 
but it does unfairly benefit me, and I am responsible for interrupting it. I need to work hard to recognize it myself, but I cannot do it alone. And she just finishes up here. I'm just going to finish up here with this section that she says, this work can be revolutionary. If we as white people will receive it, reflect and work to change the behavior. On hand, it points out how difficult and fragile we are. But on the other hand, how simple taking responsibility can be. So the next book I want to share is from Post Traumatic Slave Dis uh, Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome is a condition, Dr. DeGruy says, that exists when a population has experienced multi generational trauma resulting from centuries of slavery and continued experiences of oppression and institutionalized racism. Add to this condition is a belief, real or imagined, that the benefits of the society in which they live are not accessible to them. Dr. DeGruy is not only a professor and researcher, she, is also, she also travels around the world speaking and teaching about diversity and race. She often, is, she often asks her audience if they know what the term racism means. Almost universally, they say they do. So first she asks them if whites can be racist. Of course, everyone agrees they can. She then asks the audience to identify the ways in which white racism adversely impacts the lives of black people as a group. And then she forms a list. Okay, so these are some of the things that come out in the group. Blacks are impacted economically. Discriminatory, discriminatory hire practices, having little or no access to capital, limited access to good health care. They are over-repressed in the criminal justice system. They are under-repressed in the educational system. Discriminatory practices, barring them from finding housing in good areas. And of course, she says, the list just goes on. Then Dr. Grew asked her audience how black racism adversely impacts the lives of white people as a group, and the whole room goes silent. The silence is because black people do have bias, they do have prejudice, and at times even feel hatred toward white people, perhaps even inspiring fear in many. They rarely, the reality is that Black people lack the power to affect the lives of white people as a group in the same way. Black people's feelings toward white people do not preclude a white person's ability to get the loan, receive fair treatment by the justice system, acquire an education, and so on. Dr. DeGruy explains that when the Europeans came to the new country or even in their home countries, to commit our negative, to commit or to create a negative act or thought about doing most of the things that were uncomfortable. This makes, you know, about doing the things that were uncomfortable, this discomfort is caused by the difference between our, the action and the belief about oneself. 
She says, this process is called cognitive dissonance. For example, during the um, early days of the coronavirus, the media put the fear of God in all of us, and a large majority of people stocked up on toilet paper. I still don't know why the toilet paper, but that's what they did. And then there were those who would knock down, destroy, or kill their own grandmother or small child if they stood in their way of getting their field of toilet paper. You saw the stories on the news, on TV, and, and perhaps in person. Most of us would experience great discomfort if we knocked people down or abused them. Why? Because most of us think of ourselves as decent people. And decent people don't knock down old people or children around or over a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> this discomfort, as I mentioned before, is called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive having to do with our thinking and dissonance meaning discord. We resolve this cognitive dis dissonance in one of two ways. We own up to our act and address it and the harm it has caused, or we justify the negative act rather than admit any wrongdoing. We say they deserved it is usually the typical justification, Dr. Joy DeGruy says. The action by the Europeans over the last 500 years, i.e. slavery, raping, killing, and their belief about themselves, i.e. we are good Christians, was so great and the, cogn not, and the cognitive dissonance so painful that they were obligated to go to great lengths in order to survive their own horrific behavior. It wasn't until I was in, in my late 40s, you know, this is, this, is, this is me, it wasn't until I was in my late 40s that I noticed that there were particular parts of my life that I continued to struggle with and, and situations that I found myself in continuously. I started thinking to myself, there was, there has got to be a reason, you know, why I'm struggling so much with money, for instance, and why I always um, came up short at the end of the month. A reason, there had to be a reason why I always felt relationships felt like traps. And there was a reason that I could never feel comfortable in intimate relationships. Another habit or feeling um, that I felt was that I could not trust white people, even though I was married to a white woman, have mixed children, and of course have plenty of white friends. It was just something that I couldn't shake. It wasn't until I started studying mental health, counseling, psychology, and my own black history that I learned about trauma, particularly PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, what is post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, it's a mental condition that may occur after a traumatic event or after multiple tra uh, traumatic events. It can happen after there has been an actual or a threat of serious injury, death, or sexual violence to ourselves or others. PTSD can also occur after repeated or extreme exposure to the details <clears throat> of a traumatic event. For example, being called a nigger day after day, or being threatened by um, a son and his father um, for dating their daughter. <laughs> this is, these, these were things that actually happened to me. Or being pulled over and brutalized by the police every single day. Now. That has not happened to me um, in that sense, 
but I have been pulled over many times. And of course, we as black and brown people recognize that consistency. Before I started on my own personal journey in studying PTSD, I thought it was only something people had had experienced in war, you know, because you hear a lot of times people come back from war, you know, they're either on medication or they can't really fit back into society, you know, those sort of things. But I thought it was just something that they experienced. What I found out is that PTSD usually occurs when we are young, primarily. Almost all of us will have an experience at least one traumatic event in our lives. Um, and this was from the, um, I got this, this little piece here. Um, about at least, you know, we will, we will at least experience one traumatic event in our life. I got that from Black, the Black Dog Institute um, website. And it says some of those tra traumatic events could be sexual abuse, physical attack, um, being threatened with a gun, a knife, or a weapon. It could also be domestic violence or abuse, childhood, phys uh, chi childhood physical or emotional abuse, a serious car accident, being held captive, torture, seeing someone killed or badly injured, etc. And of course, all these things happen um, um, when um, many black people were in slavery and oppressed. And it's again, and you know, and I, we're talking here specifically about the black and brown people of America and Australia, but it happens in any slavery. All right. And so, just on that note, I want to recognize that. Um, sex trafficking and human trafficking today there's over 21 million of us uh, 20, 21 million to four, uh, 45 million trapped in slavery today and that's uh, domestic servitude forced labor child labor sex trafficking uh, bond labor uh, forced marriages you know and, 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 and so this is what slavery looks like a lot today so we want to recognize that all of these traumas, the, the domestic violence, the physical, uh, emotional child abuse, the uh, being held captive, the torture, all of that causes post-traumatic stress disorder. What I also discovered is that PTSD can be passed down from parent to child, even from generation to generation. And this is called epigenetics. Epigenetics is a process led, led to individuals' differences in their appearance, their psychology, their cognition, and their behaviors. In, in, in other words, this is something that's passed down in those areas, okay, to our children. You often hear people go, oh, you look just like your grandmother or your great-grandfather, you know. Uh, my parents used to constantly say to me, and my grandmother said to me, you look like your uncle's son. And, you know, I never knew my uncle's son. But they said that I looked like him and I had a lot of his mannerisms, okay? And he died like 20 years before I was born, you know? Well, there are parts of my professional and personal life that, I, that have been successful. And of course, I had created some successful habits. I still had bad habits that just I just couldn't break free of. And yes, that's on me, but there are certain DNA, certain, certain environmental things that happen to me that just burn so deep that I keep coming up to those uh, bad habits of those situations that, that, that I don't seem to be able to escape. This is where PTSD lives deep in the DNA and passed to us from our parents, our grand, and our grandparents, and our grandparents, grandparents, 
and so on. When I reflect on my observations and the insights of the gentleman who discovered or coined epigenetics, his name was Conrad H. Waddington, and he coined that in 1942, many of our deliberating beliefs and assumptions are also part of that legacy of trauma. Most of us raise our children based on how we were raised. Of course, there are those things our parents did that we decide we will not do or that we will do differently. But for the most part, Dr. DeGruz says, parenting is part of the myriad of skills passed down generation to generation. What do you think gets passed down through generation if what was experienced was a lifetime of abuse at the hands of a slave master or other authoritative figures? What do you think is the result of a generation after generation of young men where they were not allowed to have power or authority in over their own relationships with their parents or their wife or their children? What do you think the result would be if education was prohibited for generations? What do you think the result would be if the primary skills that mothers teach their children are those associated with adopting to a lifetime of torture? According to Dr. DeGruy, our children receive most of their attitude, life skills, and approaches to life from their parents. We also know that most of these are learned by the time they are five to six years old. What training did children in bondage receive? What training did those who were stolen from their homes receive? What training would those get, those children get that were in bondage or beaten or raped? What if they were used for medical experiments like guinea pigs? What about being lynched or Jim Crow or being brutally beaten by police? What habits do you think those kids would take on into their adult life? Dr. DeGruz, Dr. DeGruz's book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, is very informative filled with lots of facts, history, and what I love most and value greatly is she is all about telling the truth. And a lot of times when she has personal clients, because she also works with personal clients, and um, a lot of her, her colleagues um, uh, don't agree with the fact that one of the things that she absolutely wants from her clients, and she tells them this, before we sit down, I want you to be totally honest with me. I just want the truth. Because she feels you can't really help someone until they really get to the truth and tell the truth. Dr. Gru says there is no single prescription for protecting people against racism, bigotry, ignorance, or hatred. There is no one shot against intolerance or fantasism. However, it appears that educating people to understand that these things do exist and about the manner in which they are manifested can be helpful to those who come face to face with them. When our children, especially black children, are raised and taught about family and culture, along with the reality of discrimination and racism, this gives them tools to 
work with emotionally and psychologically to filter racist assaults that come against them personally and against black people as a group. Regret, you know, regret, regrettably, we have to protect our children from doing what comes naturally to them, which is being curious about the world and the people in it and trusting that they are safe and loved, says Dr. DeGroom. So folks, if you have not been telling your kids, your family, your friends that racism is real, then it's time to start your education and theirs. Perhaps start with these two books that I refer to in this podcast. The first, of course, as I mentioned, is White Fragility by Dr. Joy, by Dr. Robin DiAngelo. And then the second is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Once we tell ourselves the truth, keep educating ourselves, taking action steps, and having the tough conversations, and be willing to try things and start to heal, we can truly heal our soul, we can truly heal our fears, and not let race be the pandemic for every generation to fix when we can fix it in our generation. Folks, thank you very much for listening and uh, I really appreciate you. Make sure that you like, comment, and share this podcast. And if you want to, leave a voice message for me uh, telling me your insights, how you felt about the podcast. Um, And I just really love to have more conversation around race and racism or any of the subjects here on my podcast station. So again, thank you guys very much. And as always, always love your mission. Peace. Bye-bye now.